Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Steve Hayes, proud son of Wisconsin. And alas, one of your Badgers has fallen, Steve. Yeah, fallen earlier certainly than I expected. I think that than many people expected. Um, I think there was never really a question as to whether Scott Walker was going to become a first-tier candidate. The question was whether he would be able to, to maintain that uh, status once he reached there. And I think in an interesting way, the fact that he rocketed to the lead so quickly back in January, February, uh, particularly in Iowa, but was doing well in the national polls, um, caused him to maybe over-assess the importance of winning Iowa and, and certainly got tongues wagging to that effect. Uh, what do you mean by uh, over, over the top on Iowa? I don't think that he thought initially. I think he thought he would do very well in Iowa, but I don't think that that it would have been imperative for him to win Iowa. Um, but this was when he was planning an announcement in June, which is, is when we we got one from him. And I don't think he expected to rise in the polls until this summer or you know even into the fall. The fact that he climbed to the the top of the polls in January and February, um, had media talking about him as the frontrunner, even acknowledged at one point in an interview that, that he perhaps was the frontrunner. I think it put a lot of pressure on him to make sure that he wins in Iowa, which was going to be in his backyard. And I think that led him to, to do something that, that at least I find a little uncharacteristic. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, the strength of Scott Walker's candidacy, the strength of his, his tenure as governor is sort of making the tough decisions, doing them because they're right, regardless of what kind of grief he gets, then following through. And in Wisconsin, certainly as governor, that's produced results. In this case, I think what he did was try to anticipate where voters in Iowa wanted him to be and then get there first, rather than just governing and campaigning from his gut, which I think is what he had done in the past with some success. Is there a specific issue that's coming to mind? I, mean, I can think of several, but uh, you know Wisconsin, Iowa better than I do. Sure, several. I mean, you know, from big things to little things, I think, you know, his position on immigration, he'd always been, I think, fairly moderate on immigration. Certainly people pointed back to his days as county executive when he was you know, much more uh, liberal on immigration. And then he changed his position. He acknowledged in a straightforward way that he changed his position. Um, but it was, it was a change. I mean, it was a flip-flop. You had other things, uh, some, some of them small things, the little staff dust up with uh, one of his consultants who had tweeted out some negative things about Iowa. You had the Iowa Republican Party come to Walker and say she can't possibly serve on your campaign. And, you know, I thought it was going to be one of these things that just passed by, but she was later let go from the campaign. Um, I think he sort of became captive of Iowa and, and of the sense that he needed to win Iowa in a way that I think clouded his otherwise good judgment. Uh, what about the money issue? My understanding is that he had a very, very large uh, payroll compared to other candidates. Indeed, he did. And, and when you talk to people uh, who worked on the campaign and uh, helped raise money for the campaign, they point to that pretty quickly as one of the, the real causes. There was a, a very high, you know, what the campaign pros call burn rate. 
uh, which meant that they were just churning through money. And it started to really affect what the campaign was able to do on a day-to-day basis and what the campaign was likely to be able to do on a day-to-day basis because they weren't bringing in money that matched the money that was going out. Obviously, uh, for Scott Walker, who balanced the budget in Wisconsin, that was a pretty great irony. Uh, the debate performances, I mean, even the biggest Scott Walker fans, and I t- tended to lean that way, uh, acknowledge that none of it, it's not that he had a fiasco, but at no point did you look at him and go, yeah, there's the guy I've been waiting for. I think that's right. I mean, I think in, in, you know, in the first debate, he didn't really stand out. But as you say, there, there wasn't a, uh, an implosion. I mean, there wasn't a, a bad moment. In the second debate, he, you know, he had 10 minutes less than Donald Trump to talk. So I think that made it a particular challenge. I thought he did pretty well with the time that he ended up getting. He just didn't have that much time. And, and I think as a result, when people looked at who did well in the debates and who didn't, Walker's name wasn't usually at, at the top of the list and certainly not in the top three. Uh, so if I had said three months ago, uh, Walker and Perry out of the race, uh, Carson and Trump at the top, would you have had me hospitalized or just taken out and shot? No, didn't didn't you read my Weekly Standard article back then? Because uh, that's exactly what I had predicted. Oh, <laughs> was, was that it was going to be a, tr- a Trump Carson race, and then yeah, no, I mean, look, this is this is why this is why this race is so interesting, why it's so entertaining, why it's so fun, and why in some ways it's so so worrisome. I mean, I I think you you've seen candidates in Trump and Carson who are candidates of the moment, who sort of get the moment who uh, are speaking to the, the frustration and uh, anger of the Republican electorate, but also, I think, frankly, speaking to the pride that many Americans, many Republican primary voters want to see restored in their country. They're sick of their country being run down, and, and Trump and Carson are speaking to that in a sometimes aggressive uh, way. Uh, a lot of my talk radio listeners, obviously, Trump is a non, I mean, Trump, uh, Jeb Bush is a non-starter uh, for them. They just, you know, they're not going to go back. They look at Kasich and they say, well, he's not, you know, too squishy. Then they look at other people and say, well, they're not really going to fight. You know, Trump is the fighter. Is there a single candidate who can match both kind of traditional conservative uh, policies and platforms with the, des- the de- not the desire, the demand of the base that we are going to have somebody who's going to get in there and scrap with Hillary November 2016? Well, I mean, I think it depends on how you define fight, you know, what you what exactly you mean by fight. Um, but no, you know, in a way, I mean, I think if you look at the, the people who are, um, you know, establishment candidates or perhaps crossover establishment, non-establishment candidates, and I'm thinking there's somebody like a Rubio, that would have been the category I would have had Scott Walker in. Um, they're not going to be quite as aggressive as Donald Trump. And, and you know, you notice the, the difference in tone. I mean, Trump's campaign, as Walker alluded to when he was leaving, is a very negative campaign. You know, his campaign slogan is Make America Great Again, but he spends a lot of time on the particulars of the place that America finds itself today. And, and by Donald Trump's telling, it's not a very good place. And you do hear, I think, from many of the other candidates, much more optimistic rhetoric. I mean, Trump says we can make America great again, and then he talks about Donald Trump. Other candidates talk about, with more specificity, about how they would make America great again. I mean, 
again, I'm thinking of Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush does this, uh, Carly Fiorina certainly does this. Um, there, there's much more optimism from the other candidates than you get from a Trump. So speaking of Carly Fiorina, uh, we, the reason this uh, podcast sounds a little bit uh, different is because you're actually hiding out in the back of a Carly Fiorina event to which you were not invited <laughs> in Charleston, South Carolina. Fortunately, I used to live there, so I knew an escape route. I also know where you can get some shrimp and grits and homemade white lightning off, off James Island that I'll tell you about when we're done here. How was Carly? <laughs> How was she? Uh, she was good. You know, this was a, a national security forum. Um, she was asked a, a question. She was asked a series of questions um, from a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, Arthur Herman, on national security and you know foreign policy and, and America's role in the world. And I thought she handled the questions quite well. Um, at one point, I think it was the second or third question, he asked her uh, about China. And he cited the cyber attacks and talked about uh, their uh, aggression in the South China Sea and said, you know, what would you do? And she gave a nine-minute answer wow. with a, a fair amount of detail to that question. And, you know, people can agree or disagree with the policies she's proposing with her assessment of the situation. But, you know, Donald Trump probably wouldn't give a nine-minute answer uh, with any details about anything other than Donald Trump. So it was uh, certainly she went over the crowd. I was talking to some of the people who had gone there to see her. This was at the Citadel, and uh, boy, she had some fans there. It's fair to say. I think she'd she'd won some some converts to her candidacy and solidified support from those who came in sort of interested but not yet committed. I think she 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 ends up leaving with several supporters. One last question for you to kind of tie all this together. So Scott Walker was had the potential to be. Uh, I think the kind of uh, kind of mainstream traditional Republican, you know, conservative, but who, you know, kind of have a traditional resume who I thought could kind of pull people, you know, perhaps together. He's now gone. Trump is not interested in pulling people together. Ben Carson, it's just hard to see how he gets uh, people who are looking for something like a, a traditional you know, set of experiences to be president of the United States is. Uh, is Carly the one candidate left who can pull all the pieces together? And if she fails, and of course she could, and any, you know, there could be something come out, or she could just you know have some uh, bad performance. Is there somebody else who you think has all of the parts working? Well, certainly she can lay claim to a number of those different factions. Right. Um, and, and there's no question that she would be, if you're talking about a fighter, to go back to your earlier question, mm -hmm. You know, she would be somebody who clearly is sort of primed for a fight. I mean, she makes a point of taking on Hillary Clinton. She's not at all backed down from Donald Trump, challenged him on several assertions, went out of her way a couple times in this national security forum to, to take a, a shot at, at him. Um, so, yeah, so she could be a fighter. And it's clear that her conservatism brings with it more depth than one might expect from a a person who's never been involved in campaign politics. I mean, it's clear that she spent some time thinking about this, this stuff and, and, you know, really trying to understand the players and the dynamics, whether you're talking about national security policy or you're talking about social issues or you're talking mm -hmm. about um, economic issues. I mean, she clearly has studied this stuff. You know, where is she in January when voters are going to caucus in Iowa? I'm not sure, but she certainly has done herself a, a, a whole world of good in the past several weeks. And it's hard to see her faltering 
in a debate. I mean, she does very well in that. She speaks extemporaneously quite well. So I would point her as somebody who could potentially fill that role. She's, you know, she's just now at the beginning of stages of exactly. the kind of scrutiny that comes with running for president. So I think you don't want to get too far forward on your skis. But the other person I would say, and I know you and I have talked about this uh, before, is, is Marco Rubio. I mean, I, I do think that Rubio, you know, given his ability to communicate, which I think is better than anyone in modern American politics, and given sort of where he's positioned now, uh, if, if in fact the, the Trump gradually recedes, let's say, I don't think there will be a Trump implosion any longer. I think people will just sort of grow sick of, of Trump and, mm-hmm. and his act. And if he loses support and you start to see that support being redistributed elsewhere, uh, I do think Rubio could be the beneficiary of, of some of that. Um, he certainly has acquitted himself well in these debates. And then the final person I would point to is Ted Cruz, of course, who has actively positioned himself to, to gain, gain some of the support if Trump loses it. And if you're talking about a fighter, uh, very few people could be uh, more aptly described as a fighter than Ted Cruz. Steve Hayes, thanks so much for your observations. Try to sneak out of the hotel without anyone catching you, and we appreciate your time. Sounds good. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.